All right, well, we're going to dive right into our text for today as we continue our sermon series, Ask Me Another. Um, we're going to be in Second Peter, and as you turn there, we'll, we'll be in Second Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to pray before we get started. Jesus, we just welcome your presence here. God, thank you that you long to be with us and that you give us your word to speak truth and to give us a closer understanding of who you are. God, thank you that your word is living and it's active and that you long to communicate with us and to be with us and give us your presence. God, as we read tonight, would you open up our hearts to what you have um, and help us to see a greater glimpse of you, a picture of you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. So we're in 2 Timothy 2. I'm going to dive right in and read first. Last time I preached, I only had one verse, so joke's on me. This time I have an entire chapter. So um, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today, so you can follow along in your Bible or up on the screen. Usually we're NIV people, but once in a while, you know, we change it up a little bit. I think one, in, in, in one way that kind of um, gives new life to it, but also because this is kind of a full chapter and a little bit hard to grasp, the New Living Translation is a little bit more uh, common language and a little bit easier to understand. So we're going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. So if you'll follow along with me, I'm in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember and understand what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. First, I want to remind you that in the last days there will be scoffers who will laugh at the truth and, do evil th- and, do, and will do every evil thing they desire. This will be their argument. Jesus promised to come back, did he? Then where is he? Why, as far back as anyone can remember, everything has remained exactly the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth up from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the world with a mighty flood. And God has also commanded that the heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire on the day of judgment when ungodly people will perish. Verse 8. But you must not forget, dear friends, that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and everything in them will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be exposed to judgment." Verse 11, since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along, the day when God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, he has promised, a world where everyone is right with God. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to live a pure and blameless life. And be at peace with God. And remember, the Lord is waiting so that people have time to be saved. This is just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters around to mean something quite different from what he meant. Just as they do to the other parts of scripture. And the result is a disaster for them. Verse 17 I am warning you ahead of time, dear friends, so that you can watch out and not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people. 
I don't want you to lose your own secure footing, but grow in the special favor and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and honor, both now and forever. Amen. So as you can see, uh, I've got a really easy one tonight, um, the second coming of Christ. <laughs> Thanks, Forrest. Um, Peter's talking to the church, to this group of people, about uh, this promise that Jesus gave when he ascended into heaven, when he left, saying that he was going to come back soon, that he'd come back and rescue his church, that once and for all he would defeat evil and Satan, that there would be a final act of love that overcomes everything. And this is what Peter is addressing to this church. So I think every kid has one or two phobias, right? They're scared of something. You know, maybe it's the dark or uh, your scary basement, you know, or maybe you're afraid that your parents are going to leave you behind on their Christmas vacation and then robbers going to break into the house. Um, no one saw Home Alone, I guess. Uh, or maybe you're afraid to go and go to the bathroom at night because of the witch that you know is behind the shower curtain. Um, that one might be just specific to me. Um, but, you know, all kids have their fears, right? Some of us have more of these fears than others. I happen to have all of them um, and plenty more. Uh, but kids have fears. But, so I had all of those fears, but my greatest fear, like overwhelming, consumed me at all times, was that I was going to be left behind in the rapture. I, I, truly, I truly believed that it was possible for me to be left behind in the rapture. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a whole other conversation, but the rapture is just like the term that a lot of the church has used to talk about when Jesus comes back and when he returns and he takes all of, you know, the Christians, all the believers up to heaven with him, you know. And so we, we call that the rapture. And this was a, an especially big topic, I feel like, in the early, in the 80s and 90s, which I am a product of. It was a part of Christian culture. We talked about it all the time. It was also a big part of Christian pop culture. So, you know, for example, there was uh, a great band in the 90s called DC Talk that um, I knew Anna would love that one. Um, that I, it was one of the first CDs I, CDs I owned, um, which I know ages me because I do remember when CDs first came out. Um, and they had a lot of great hits, but the one on the CD that I listened to as a kid, there was one song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And let me just read you some of the lyrics to this song. This is verse two. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men, <laughs> yeah, two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. To the chorus, there's no time to change your mind. The sun, S-O-N, has come and you've been left behind. <laughs> right? Tell me as an eight-year-old that you wouldn't have been terrified of that. <laughs> so that was scary enough, but really the biggest culprit of this for me was there were these, some of you guys probably remember this or know this, there were these like fantasy type books that also became movies um, called Left Behind, which, as you probably guess, it's about being left behind in the rapture. There was, you know, the adult version, 
and there was a whole kids version that had like 30 something books and then they became movies like multiples there's one that definitely don't see with Nicolas Cage not worth it um but as you can imagine, talked about the return of Christ or kind of this biblical apocalypse, end of the world type thing, you know, the final judgment and the rapture where, you know, people are, all the believers are raptured up into heaven and non-believers are left behind, right? And so left behind, the kids who read left behind were the type of kids who were not allowed to read Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Um, I was definitely one of those kids. And the books are loosely based on scripture, right? They're, they're based on you know, a fictional kind of interpretation of the book of Revelation and a couple of other verses throughout the Bible and kind of this idea of, hey, maybe this is what will happen when Jesus returns, when this is what maybe the Bible is talking about. But it was meant to be a story, a fun story that's loosely based on scripture. Well, you know, when you're a kid, they, to me, were fact. Like, I thought this was going to happen and so my biggest fear in the world was that I was going to be left behind because I didn't realize I, I wasn't truly a Christian or I wasn't really saved. So I, like, I truly, like, every day kept inviting Jesus into my heart just to be sure, you know, like, just to make sure I was, I was a Christian. So <laughs> one time I was at my grandma's house. It was just me and my grandma, and it's a, a bigger house. She's very quiet, and yeah, I couldn't find her in the house. And so, you know, I couldn't find her anywhere. All I could find were her slippers were in the middle of the room on the floor. And of course, in Left Behind, when people are snatched up into heaven, uh, all their clothes are left behind in a pile, like, you know, their jewelry and the crowns of their teeth and all of that. It's like, you know, it's terrifying. And so her slippers are there. And so I, I knew I, was, I had just been left behind. Uh, and so can't find her anywhere. I'm like, okay, what do I do? I was like, oh, I'll turn on the TV because surely this would be breaking news if this was happening all over the world. So let me check and see if it's breaking news. I got into AU. Um, nothing on the news. There, nothing was on TV. So I was like, okay. And I was like, okay, now I know. I know what I can do. I'll call my friend Faith because if she answers or her family answers, like they're Christians, so they would definitely not be left behind. So if they answer, I'm good. So I call Faith up, Faith's mom answers the phone, instant relief, and then I realize I had not planned ahead to, to have a reason to call. So I was just like, um, I, yeah, just making sure that Faith's birthday party is on Saturday. And her mom's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, thanks, bye. You know, as my, mom, my grandma walks down the stairs, you know. I'm like, oh, hey, grandma. Um, I know I sound like a crazy person, but this was like a real thing. <laughs> German's nodding. Yeah, I do sound like a crazy person, but this is a real thing. Truly, uh, Blaine said that his biggest fear, slightly modified, was that the rapture would happen before his wedding night. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, neither of us were allowed to read Harry Potter, so that explains that. So Peter's writing this letter about the second coming of Christ to a church that's expecting it. When they read Jesus' words that say, I'm coming back soon, they think it's going to happen in their lifetime. And so he's writing to encourage them to remain hopeful, to hope for this return of Christ. So before we get into this passage specifically, a very just brief explanation of the second coming, what we see in Scripture, I'm not going to go too far into it, but 
um, I think it is important for us to understand, like, what is this church waiting for, and what are we talking about here? And I, I do understand that probably not everyone in this room comes with the same understanding of what this looks like, because we don't often talk about it. And so <clears throat> I don't want to get too heady about it. There's all different interpretations and, you know, things that we can talk about at the end times. We're not going to get into that, but um, a couple things about it, just to kind of start off our conversation and where this church is coming in with this knowledge. So since the Old Testament, the prophets had been telling about this time when the Lord would come back, that he'd come back on the clouds, that he would come back with his holy army of angels to defeat death and Satan once and for all. In Zechariah, it, it does say that he, he's coming on the clouds and with his holy ones or his holy army. And then later in the Gospels, you know, in Matthew, Jesus talks about, I'm going away, but when I come back, I will come back on the clouds with power and with glory. And then in Revelation, which most people think about when they think about the second coming, it, it tells about John's visions, about what these final days will be like when Jesus returns, uh, when there's a final day of judgment of the earth, you know, the day of the Lord, as Revelation talks about, what we like to call the blessed hope, you know, this hope that Jesus will come and conquer death once and for all and rescue his believers, rescue his church, because we do believe that Satan, you know, has some power in this realm right now in the in-between, and so this, this hope is in Jesus coming and finishing the deed, defeating Satan and evil once and for all, judging evil, there's a final day of judgment, and where his church wins, that he establishes everlasting peace and universal peace, and where he creates a, a new heaven and a new earth, as this passage talked about too. There's a new heaven and a new earth where God's kingdom comes to dwell with us, and we are in his presence for all of eternity. And so we don't know everything about what this is going to look like. There's no way to know that. Um, a lot of this is symbolism, so we don't know the day or time. We don't know what this will look like, but we do have a promise from Jesus that he will return. And so P Peter's addressing this church that was hanging on to this promise, hanging on to the promise that God's kingdom would come back and they would dwell with the Lord forever. And they're living so expectantly because they understood it differently than I did. You know, I was scared to death of it, but they were longing for it. They were longing for this day where they're with God forever. And not the left-behind version, you know, but the hope of being reunited with Christ. And so if we're talking about everything being a question in this series, Ask Me Another what would the question be from this passage? I think it's, how do we wait for Christ's return? How do we wait for Christ's return? How does this inform our lives, this understanding that he's coming back? How does it affect how we live, how we think, how we act? So Peter's writing to this highly persecuted church. Surprise, they're all highly persecuted. It's kind of what comes with the territory. And so they're waiting for Jesus as deliverance from this persecution. And what they realize based on their circumstances and the way that they've lived is that this new heaven and new earth that Jesus promises is far greater than anything here on this earth, anything that this world had to offer. And so they're living in a way that expected him to come soon, um, and everything was done with this in mind. Everything that they did together was in expectation of Jesus' return. So Peter's writing to encourage them in their waiting. And although this church never experienced the second coming, you know, we're still waiting on it, although they are with Jesus now, 
there are things that we can learn from this church and from what Peter says in how we live our lives in the hope of, of Jesus' return, of him coming back. So a couple of ways that, that this informs us that I want to get into today with this passage. The first is that I think we view faith as important, you know, to a varying degree. You're all in this room because we view faith as an important thing. But I wonder if we view faith as urgent. I'll say that again. I think we all view faith to some level as important, but do we view it as urgent? Although we don't know the date or time when he's going to come back, we do have the promise that he is coming back soon. In the early church, we see from this example, they felt this urgency. It affected everything that they did because they truly believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And what we see from this passage and what we believe is that Jesus hasn't come back, come back yet because he's gracious and he wants more people to be saved and to know him before he returns. So what did they do while they were living this urgency? Well, one, they met regularly. They were always together. They were praying and they were fasting constantly. They were extremely generous with their possessions. They were just giving so freely of what they had. They shared the gospel constantly. They were sharing so much about their faith with the world around them. And they even did things to hurry up his return, as it says in verse 12. You know, they were so excited to see him come back that they were doing things that they thought would hurry up his return. And this was also part of that big movement in the 80s and 90s, not too long ago, where the church truly believed that Jesus was coming back any second. And so they did all of these things. They lived in such a way where their present actions were all done out of that motivation that Jesus was coming back soon. And it wasn't that they weren't living presently. I think that that's like a, a criticism that we often have about people who live that way, that you're not living presently or in this moment. But I think actually they were doing just the opposite. They were living um, very intentionally in this present just with a different mindset. And so how does this urgency affect our lives, you know, practically? What would this mean about us? What did it mean about this church? Well, one, I think when we zoom out, things that seem to look big to us right now end up looking pretty small. And that's not to devalue any of our concerns or our feelings or any of that, but when we think about the kingdom coming back soon, things just start to matter differently. We care about different things than maybe we once did before because it gives us this heavenly perspective where we see with heaven's eyes about the world around us and the people around us. I think our priorities change because we just have this different perspective. We see things differently and we're leaning into our understanding of people and those around us and our actions out of the mindset, out of the view and perspective that Jesus is coming back. So different things matter to us when we see this, the urgency of his return. I think another thing that, that changes is our view of missions and evangelism. It's why we talk about it so much. You probably are like often thinking, wow, they talk about discipleship. They talk about evangelism all the time. This is why we take trips. It's why we support missionaries financially. It's why, you know, Blaine and Jesse and I would tattoo the face of a dead theologian on our bodies forever to see missions happen. It's why we are constantly talking about the Great Commission. We talk about that all the time. It's why we talk about 
discipleship all the time, sharing our faith, growing together in our faith. Because when we understand the urgency of who Jesus is and what his message and his gospel is, we, we care about sharing that with others. And another thing about this urgency is that it changes our actions from being me-centered to we-centered. We-centered meaning the body of Christ or the church. You know, if I thought that I was going to die next week, I might do a bucket list of items, a bucket list of things that I wanted to do. But if I believed that Jesus was coming back in a week, the things that I'd do would probably be different. Maybe I'd share my faith differently. I'd live in community differently. You know, it'd be less about those bucket list items and more about sharing the hope that we have and living in this body together with other believers. And so I also think that knowing this urgency of Christ's return leads to us living in anticipation for it. Knowing the urgency of Jesus' return leads to living in hopeful anticipation of it. We hope for it. We start to long for it when we start to understand the urgency of it. Here are some of the things that the early church knew. One, they knew that there would be a day when Jesus defeats death and evil once and for all. The early church knew that there will be a day where there's one final act of love when the Lord brings us home and makes a new heaven and new earth that we get to dwell in forever. They knew that there would be a day where we get to live in his presence forever, the King of kings and Lord of lords face to face, reunited with him. And they knew that there would be a day of ultimate peace and ultimate justice in the presence of God. And because the church could picture this, they had a vision for it, they lived every day in this anticipation of it, in this hope of it. So a couple of things about living in that anticipation. How does this inform our lives? How does this change how we think or how we act and believe? Well, one, I mean, like I said before, when we zoom out, not just do things, do our priorities change, but the problems that looked big to us, I think, start to look a little bit smaller. And the reason I say that is because I think our trust in him changes when he, we know that he's coming back and when we know the end of the story, which is that he already won. Like, that's a done deal. We know that he wins. His love wins. And so our trust in him changes. We're able to give him more control when we understand the end of the story. Again, we're seeing with heaven's eyes. We're also filled with inexpressible joy and hope, even in suffering, that passes kind of our understanding just to have this peace with him. First Peter 1, 8 and 9, going back to First Peter, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we have this joy and this hope that comes with knowing that he's coming again. And then also our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure no longer is here, but our treasure is in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible also talks about how when we, whoever will lose their lives will gain it. 
when we lose our earthly lives, when we give up all of our own passions and desires and, our, and everything that kind of ties us down here, we gain eternal life with the King of Kings. So this means not putting our love or our trust in earthly things, the things that are around us, and that's very countercultural, right? It means living a life of extreme generosity like we saw this church do. It allows us to want to gather together, gather daily, spending time together to pray and to fast and to live with other believers. We saw this for them that their, their home was not here. Their home was in heaven. And this was just temporary. And again, I want to go back to that idea that this wasn't just living apathetically. You know, it wasn't living in a way that wasn't intentional. It, it really is the opposite. It's being so intentional about our lives here but our priorities just change when our focus is on the kingdom of heaven and Christ's return. This way of life, this kind of crazy way of life, it seems crazy to us probably in the world that we live in, in the culture around us, where we're not really taught to live this way. I also think this is probably a lot easier for people who are persecuted. And I'm not wishing for us to be persecuted by any means. But when you live in a part of the world where you are persecuted for your faith, this is probably makes a lot more sense. But for us, we're not really taught to feel this way because we have a lot of comfort. And it seems crazy to us, but I think that that, I wonder if that's because we've made our homes here and not heaven. Maybe we've settled in here and become satisfied with this level of comfort and what we have here and with this world being our home and that these treasures have become enough for us. This comfort, this way of life has become enough for us. I don't know if this is true for you guys. It's really hard for me living away from home. I'm very close with my family. My whole family lives back at home. And so I get homesick a lot. And I've been here for nine and a half years now. And every time the goodbyes are still just as hard when I go home and I say goodbye. It's hard every single time. And the only thing that really helps is the anticipation of what's to come, of um, thinking about the next time I'll see them or knowing that, my mom's going to come on her spring break in April, or that I'll be home in June to come see the family. Or maybe it's like friends. For me, it's my college friends who no longer live here. You know, we're always making plans for the next time we're going to see each other because that kind of carries us through. It gets us excited making plans for the future and thinking about when we're going to see each other again. In those moments of, of homesickness, I think about, okay, just a couple more months till I see them again, or a couple more weeks until I see them again. My question tonight for us is, are we homesick for heaven? Are we homesick for heaven? Do we view heaven that same way? Do we long for it? Do we long to be in Jesus' presence the same way that I might long to see my college roommate or see my parents and my sister? Are we homesick for heaven? I want to share uh, a story, and then we'll, we'll kind of start to close in a little bit. Um, when I did my internship with Chi Alpha, I did it here a couple years ago, and we took uh, a couple of classes, like once a month, twice a month, we took classes. And they'd be on a whole bunch of things. Sometimes it was hermeneutics, which is like theology, how to read the Bible, um, sermon writing classes, you know, classes on relationships and spiritual friendships, you know. And so we had one class, which was by far my favorite class, was our eschatology class, which is the theology of end times. 
It was taught by a man named Harv Herman, who is one of my favorite people. He, some of you guys may have gone to his breakout at Winter Retreat. He now lives in Springfield and is kind of the grandfather of Chi Alpha, in my opinion. Harv's amazing. And so he was teaching this class, and there's five of us interns. We're just sitting around a table at Embassy Church down the street. And he's just talking about kind of his understanding of the book of Revelation and the end times and, you know, the new heaven and new earth when Jesus is going to come back and ransom his church and all of that. And so he's talking about it. And he was talking about it with such excitement and such awe that we were like hanging on every word that he said, you know, gave me just a new perspective on the end times. And so we're listening so intently. He's talking so much about it. And then he got to this verse in Revelation, in Revelation 2.17, and I'm going to read it to you and then explain kind of the situation around how he read it. So he read, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And he started talking about this verse and imagining the scenario of whatever this is when God gives us this white stone with a new name on it. And when he started talking about it, he was already excited, but he went into this other world. It was like almost like his eyes glazed over and he was like transported into another place. So, you know, he didn't even know that the five of us were sitting around anymore. So we're just watching him talk about this. And he was saying, you know, we don't know what that stone's going to say. Is it going to be a literal name? Maybe, maybe not. Is it going to be a stone? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's just symbolism. Do all of us get the same name? Do we all get different names? Like, what does it say? We don't know any of that. But he started explaining it with, while he was, you know, picturing it in his mind. And his eyes just started to well up with tears. And, and he said, you know, I don't know what this is going to be exactly. But you know, God's going to hand us this stone, and when we open it up and read it, and this was a direct quote from him, he said, we're going to say, oh my God, this is what it was all about. Whatever it says on that stone, whatever that symbolism is, we don't know, but there's something about that moment where we will understand what it's like, what this was all, what it was all worth, you know, what, what this was all for. And in that moment, that experience of seeing him say that and cry at the thought of how overwhelming that moment will be, it gave me a totally new glimpse of what it looked like to long for the kingdom of God. Like Harv was living in another world. He, he just understood, like, this life, it's nice, it's great, but, like, what I long for is the kingdom of heaven. What I long for is to be with Jesus forever. Because Harv had this vision of the kingdom. He had a picture of what this will be like and an excitement and a joy and a hope for it. He knew that this life is temporary. It's not permanent. And we're preparing for something that's so much greater. As we start to, to close, the band can come on up. And we'll respond in a minute. Again, are we homesick for heaven? Are we homesick for heaven? Do we long to be with him? And also, do we have a vision for the kingdom? Do we have this picture that Harv had? Can we see what this is like? Do we long for it? Do we have a vision for the kingdom? And I think, honestly, we might not be at this place of anticipation yet, 
we might not feel that because maybe we don't have a vision of heaven. We don't have a vision of what it'll be like to be with him face to face. And before we get to this place where we long for his return, we need to picture it first. We need to see it and long for it and desire it. It's not about forcing an attitude or, you know, getting to the right mindset because we can do that, but that's short-lived. You know, it doesn't last, and it gets us nowhere when we force this attitude. All of that, the attitude, the thoughts, all of that is birthed out of a vision for the kingdom. That comes first. And tonight, as we respond in worship and as we sing together and pray, I'd encourage us and challenge us to ask Jesus for a picture of him, a picture of him, a picture of the kingdom of heaven, a picture of his return. And then can we ask him to realign our priorities, putting our treasures in heaven and not earth, making our home there and not here. And I think God longs to reveal that to us. There are parts of his word that he wants to bring to life so we can long for him long for his coming, for his return, because the King of Kings is coming, and we have a role to play in the waiting of it. Let's pray. King Jesus, we know that you have designed this life to be temporary because you're coming again. And although this world right now still can be filled with evil and Satan and, and although you're, you're, you move and you work in it, we also know the end of the story and that's that you defeated death once and for all. God, that your love is strong enough to conquer all of evil, all of death. You did that on the cross and that you're coming again on the clouds to defeat Satan once and for all. And God, I pray that you would help us to live in anticipation of that day, not in fear of it, God, would you help us to get a picture of you, a picture of your kingdom, a picture of what it will look like to spend all of our days singing your praises with all of the angels and the heavenly hosts, God. God, I pray that as we get that picture, would you realign our priorities and our preferences to be of you? God, would our treasure not be here, but would we store it up in heaven? Would this world have nothing to offer us that you can't offer us something so much greater? God, tonight as we worship, I pray that you would give us a real encounter with you, Holy Spirit. Give us a picture of what it looks like to live with you for all of eternity. And as the book of Revelation says, to sing with the heavenly hosts and all the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We worship you, Jesus, for who you are. Reveal yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we worship together.